Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by senior advisor of The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All Lie, now available in paperback, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for coming along. Thanks for asking me to the party. Also on the show today is legendary Democratic strategist, host of That Trippy Show, and senior advisor to Lincoln Project, Joe Trippy. Joe, welcome back. Good to be with you. So guys, before we get into the topics of the day, Stuart, I just want to spend a minute. Your book, your latest book, It Was All a Lie, just came out on paperback this week. You know, when I read it last year, I was struck by it. There's so much of it that is such a, I don't even want to call it a racial undertone, but a racial overtone. But as I told you, I think when I first read the book, what I thought was most fascinating was for all of the ethos of the pull yourself up by the bootstraps deal, that if William F. Buckley Jr.'s father had not bought the publishing house (laughs) to get his book published and to start the National Review, it never would have happened. Yeah, there are so many stories about the Republican Party and truths about the Republican Party. I thought I knew a lot about the party. I worked in it for like 30 years. You know, the Republican Party is not an obscure subject, and there's a lot of great stuff that's written about it. And being able to read a lot about it, there's a a fascinating history of right-wing media. I think it's called Messengers of the Right by a University of Virginia professor, Nicole Hammer, that went through the whole history of the development of right-wing media as a separate entity. And she came to write it because she lives in Iowa farm girl growing up. She had a kind of moderate Republican dad, and she watched him change through Fox News and right-wing media and Rush Limbaugh. And she became fascinated by this and ended up writing this book. And there's one little story she tells here that I just found fascinating. You know, one of the original post-World War II right-wing publications was a small magazine called Human Events. And when I was coming up, It was so right-wing, it was jokingly referred to as inhuman events. But it was sort of the Steve Jobs garage of right-wing media. Sort of everything sort of grew out of that. So I always assumed that human events would have been started by a couple of right-wing nutjobs. So in fact, it was started by two former Harvard professors who were anti-war. And one of them got fired from it the Saturday Evening Post for writing a piece after Pearl Harbor saying we shouldn't go to war. Not exactly a popular opinion. And this whole concept of there is truth and then there is mainstream media, where the real truth grew out of their opinion, what we would call mainstream media, had been co-opted by sort of the industrial military complex and had become too pro-war. So that otherness that became this bubble of right-wing media grew out of these two guys having this strong belief as pacifists, which I just find extraordinarily interesting and sort of ironic. But anyway, it's a fantastic book. 
it just goes to show you, I mean, so many of the things that we thought were sacrosanct being Republicans, even if you weren't a conservative. And in my mind, those two things used to be different. There were Republicans and there were conservative and there were conservative Republicans, but they didn't necessarily have to go together. This idea of individual liberty, this idea of a muscular and moral foreign policy, and this idea of limited federal government, limited government generally, local control, all of those things are now just out the window, even if they were ever real to begin with. You know, I, I think a lot of the principles that we thought were the basis of the party were, in fact, marketing slogans. I mean, not that long ago, I mean, six years ago, it's not ancient history, I think. 90% of the party would have agreed that there were certain basic principles that we could agree on. We as Republicans, limited government, character counts, personal responsibility, the deficit matters, strong on Russia. And it's not just that we've drifted away from those things, which parties do from time to time. We're antithetical to those. We're against that, where the character doesn't count. How many times do we hear that about Trump? We're the pro-Putin party, where the deficit doesn't matter party. You know, and my conclusion about this was I don't think people abandon deeply held beliefs without some massive external input, which hasn't happened here. You don't abandon deeply held beliefs in a few years. It just means you didn't deeply hold them. I mean, the thing, too, that we've seen, and I think that we're starting to see a lot of these chickens come home to roost, such as it is, is that it hasn't just been the right wing media. It's been the right wing thought leadership, for lack of a better way to put it right-wing legal scholarship, this dedication to this sort of originalist constitutional construction. There is even a story, I think, last week after SB8 down in Texas took effect, that there was this conservative lawyer in D.C. who had literally been figuring out how to write a law like SB8 that could maneuver around every possible roadblock to either A, passage, or B, potentially being overturned by either a state or a federal court. And so, you know, we like to say, like, you didn't get a 6-3 Supreme Court by accident. This has been 40 years of building and building and building. And it, like you said, it's across the board. It's not just with thought leaders. It's with legal experts, et cetera. And it's morphed into an authoritarian movement. Maybe it wasn't morphing. Maybe it always was. That was what I was going to ask, Stuart. So, you know, after writing this book and a year after it comes out, now you've got the paperback. Was the Republican Party always the authoritarian party in making, or did going back to whether or not it's Palin, whether or not it's the Tea Party, now we have Trump, were all of the mechanisms and foundational pieces in place there for someone like a Trump to come in who has no strategic or tactical brilliance of his own, but all these people who are now willing to sort of row in the same direction as him? You know, that's really the question that led me to write this book. Like, how is it that I worked in this party, and I go back to this in 2016, it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong about Trump than me. I didn't think he'd win the primary. I think I famously said, you know, I didn't think he'd win a single primary, which was mainly wishful thinking and to be provocative, but I didn't think he'd win, and I didn't think he'd win the general. So when he did, I had to ask myself, like, how did this happen? How is this reality so different than the reality I thought I was living in with the Republican Party? And that's what led me to write the book. And what became clear is in the post-World War II Republican Party, there have been these two strains. One was a sane, governing, boring, Eisenhower, call it, strain. The other was a Joe McCarthy strain, conspiratorial, often racist, xenophobic, non-governing. And that those two 
strains fought each other in different ways, in different intensities. Sometimes there was a sort of unilateral disarmament. There were alliances of convenience. But I think, you know, Reed, you were a Bush guy. Going back to 1997. Yeah. So most of us who worked for George Bush believed in this concept of compassionate conservatism. And, you know, you remember Bush got a lot of grief from conservatives by saying, well, look, when you say it's compassionate conservatism, are you saying that conservatives have been seen as not being compassionate? And Bush's answer to that pretty much was, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I know I can speak for myself, but I don't think I was unique in this at all. We saw this dark side of the party, but assumed that the part of the party that we felt part of, the Bush part, the compassionate conservative part, would emerge as the dominant party, if only because the country was changing so much. And it would have to, to address appealing to a increasingly non-white electorate. But isn't that what caused the dark side to start to take hold as they realized they weren't going to be able to stop that? In other words, so the authoritarian part of it starts to take hold because we can't win an election either way. Well, it was a critical choice. And I go back to this, you know, as the guy who screwed up the Romney campaign, when the party did that so-called autopsy after 2012, which I think you have to give Ryan Schreiber's credit for doing. It's always hard to be self-critical. What were its conclusions? Pretty obvious, but it's good to state them, you know, that we had to be more inclusive, that we had to be seen as open to other ideas, that we had to appeal to more women, particularly women working outside the home and single mothers and single women, that we had to appeal more to non-white electorates. And it was presented not just as an electoral necessity, but as a moral mandate, that if we were going to earn the right to govern this big, cacophonous, confusing, changing country, we had to represent that. So that's what we said we believed. And then Trump came along and said, no, no, we can win without all that. And it was almost like this audible sigh of relief, like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. I mean, look, Eisenhower got 43 or 46% of the African-American vote in 1956. Nixon got 33%. Jackie Robinson campaigned for Nixon. So then you go to 1964, and Goldwater gets 7% because he opposed the Civil Rights Bill. So you could have made the case, I probably would have bought this if I would not been like, you know, nine years old, that after the civil rights bill passed, that a considerable number of African-Americans would drift back to the Republican Party because of shared values, entrepreneurship, patriotism, cultural conservatism, whatever. That would have seemed logical, but it never happened. So the party became an increasingly white party. And there was a thing of when it was sort of given as a truth that the problems that we had as Republicans appealing to black voters, white Republicans appealing to black voters, was we just didn't know how to communicate with them. It was that, you know, we didn't know how to sort of speak their language, as it were. So it spawned this sort of cottage industry of black consultants coming down and talking to predominantly white campaigns and predominantly overwhelmingly white candidates to try to teach us how to talk to black people. So I mean, I think back and look at this, and it's like, we actually listened to this, like, you know, the edge of our seat, like, there's some key here. And in fact, black people understood it's just fine. It's what we were saying. Yeah, they just didn't like you. That they didn't like. It was a policy. That, again, goes back to Pete Wilson and Bush, where you saw Pete Wilson get really draconian on immigration stuff and really push Hispanics away from the Republican Party. I mean, really shove them. And Bush with compassionate conservatism in Texas, 
and the difference between how strong the Republican Party still is in Texas, leading to Abbott, but we'll get into that later on. But in California, you saw with Newsom and the recall, the Republican Party is in a shambles. Yeah, look, I mean, in 1994, George Bush beats Ann Richards, which no one thought he would. And Pete Wilson helps pass Prop 187. Is the rest history? In some ways it is. I mean, if you want to look at where the Republican Party is today nationally, starting in California circa 1994 would be a good place to start because it just got crazier from there. And I mean, I even remember I worked in California for 10 years. The rank and file of the party, like we go to party conventions with Arnold, he'd get booed. He's the sitting governor of the state. He is literally the only one keeping the lights turned on there, right? Like without us and raising money for them, they don't have office space. You know, and I was told that, you know, during the 90s, during Wilson, during Duke Magian, there'd be fistfights in the bar because even then the wing nuts were nuttier than anybody could imagine. And so, you know, I think that that's one of those things where, to your point, Stuart, Bush understood, I think both as a person and politically, that Texas, like California, a very big, dynamic state, you know, it's got every color under the sun. It's got every demographic group. It's got every religious group. And Texas was better than that. Texas wasn't xenophobic. It wasn't ugly. And maybe it's because of a thousand mile long border on the Rio Grande with Mexico with people crossing back and forth. I mean, we used to go there in college, right? We used to go to Nuevo Laredo just to hang out. I mean, Tex-Mex culture, it's so ingrained. And everybody thought that was normal, right? You could cross back and forth over the bridge. No one cared, right? It wasn't a big deal. It gets back to, in a lot of ways, the reason I joined the Lincoln Project with you guys is because I think to fight this, we've got to put all that stuff behind us, any differences, and come together and stop this thing. Stop it in 2022. Make sure that this authoritarian wing doesn't seize the presidency in 2024. And that means Democrats, Republicans, former Republicans, independents, recognizing the real threat here. The one thing we have seen is that the Lincoln Project's position is generally take whatever you think is bad, multiply it by two, and that's probably where it is. But even as of January 6th, you know, our imagination failed us again. We knew something bad was going to happen post-election if Trump lost. We just knew that would happen. You really predicted that. I think more than anybody else, you spoke to that. I think you wrote a piece about that. I have to give all of the credit to Mary Trump, the former president's niece, after a conversation with her where I said, do you think he'll really cause trouble after the election? And she said, so long as he believes he is physically safe, he'll do whatever it is. And that sticks with me even to this day. He has men and women who are pledged to put down their lives for his. And so he will say and do anything because he knows that if the time comes, someone will throw him in the back of a car and get him out of there. And so I think we should always keep that in the top of our heads, that this is not a guy who is going away, A, but B, we weren't surprised, unfortunately. But then the speed with which, guys, everything has moved on the right. It was like everything, you know, Joe, you're talking about this 40 years of a Republican conservative machine all came spilling out in the last eight months. And I think that that's one of those things where to go back to Mary's book about her uncle is she would say even in elementary school, Trump would go in and do something crazy and people would just stand there and gawk. And I think that's what we're seeing now. Everybody's so far back on their heels. They're like, well, how are we supposed to stop this? You know, the freight train's going down the track. And I think that can be an overwhelming feeling and it can certainly be demoralizing and put you into a place where you're more likely to just stand there again because you're like, what do I do now? That lack of motion might be the biggest thing that concerns me. People who are on 
in autocratic movements, when they win, one of the key elements of their winning is the inability to imagine them winning. No one could imagine Germany, the most evolved democracy culture in Western Europe, turning into what it became, a killing machine, the essence of evil. And it did. You know, the first line, I wrote a new preface for the paperback of It Was All a Lie. And my first sentence is, I keep getting it wrong. Because exactly what you're saying, Reed. You know, if you'd asked me on January 5th, I never would have predicted that January 6th would happen. If you asked me on November 2nd, if Trump lost by, you know, north of 300 electoral college votes and eight, nine million would Republicans accept it, I would have said, yeah, of course they will. What are they going to do? Say the election was rigged? Well, yep, sure enough. You know what, though? You know, there have been a lot of scary poll numbers coming out recently, but the one that really I think people are misreading and that really shocked me, I think it was CNN poll that had something like, you know, 56, 57 percent of the American people believe that democracy is threatened. And the most scariest number was only 51 percent of Democrats believe that. In other words, the group that really believes democracy is under threat in that poll was Republicans. It was like 10 points higher. This 40-year lie machine that's pumping out there has been able to convince more Republicans that democracy is under threat than what we and Midas Touch and other people who've been sitting there saying, hey, there's a real threat here. Democracy is on the ballot 2022. That's what's at stake. We got to somehow break through to the corporations, to everybody. Joe, I hadn't thought about it that way, which is why it's always important to have a variety of perspectives because it's easy to get stuck in your own beliefs that those people believe that the election was stolen and that Joe Biden is a false president. Therefore, democracy is under attack and that the only way to get it back is to make sure that Republicans win in 2022 or 2024, either not caring or not understanding what's going to happen as a result of that. Meanwhile, there are a whole lot of people out there want to get back to normal. Their normalcy bias is sort of kicking in. And that whole thing that January 6th couldn't happen in America, it did. Still, with all that that they thought wasn't possible happening, they still don't see the threat. And those are people that we've got to bring into the coalition somehow and get them to understand that threat. Well, let me ask you this, though, because we had 9-11, which was abnormal. And there were a few years there where everything felt abnormal. Then we had the financial crisis less than a decade later. So then we had, was it like four years of normalcy? And then we had Trump. And even that was like, well, he's crazy. You know, nothing too crazy's happened yet. I mean, superficially. Then the pandemic hits. So my question is like, what is normal? Like there's no old normal left. Whatever normal we eventually find could be a couple of years down the road. Well, I think more than that. I mean, the fundamental key element, we've talked about this before, about other democracy is somebody has to be willing to lose. And if you're not willing to lose, you don't believe in democracy. And the Republican Party's position now is they believe in democracy and they win. And when they don't, something was rigged. You don't believe in democracy. I mean, they did this even before the election in California. They were saying it's, it's rigged. I mean, this wasn't close, right? No, no, no. It was like 30 points at least, which I think does go back to 2022. The margin of victory has to be as big as we can possibly make it in these races because it does sort of make it tougher for them to do the steel thing, but they'll still do it and they're going to do it. So none of this happens in a vacuum. So that was one thing I was thinking about this morning, guys, and I scribbled some notes earlier that I sent you in. 
is that the Democrats, Joe, as you know, like to wring their hands and gnash their teeth and tear at their clothes, do all the things they did in the Iliad. But now they're trying to crank down the road towards a voting rights bill. They're trying to get the infrastructure deal done. You know, and those are the things that are sucking up a lot of energy. But the energy elsewhere in the states is sort of still very neurotic and just all over the place. But the Republicans have their own sets of issues. One is that they still got January 6th to contend with. And the select committee, I assume, will get back to business before long. Secondly, they're going to have to answer for COVID as a party. You even see the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, now said, like, we should have mask mandates. You got to get vaccinated. Then so many of these districts are either already gerrymandered so much or will be gerrymandered so much that they're going to have true nuts on the ballot in a lot of these places. And lastly, they still got the orange albatross hanging around their neck. So like the Democrats feel like they're under siege because the Republican machine is moving so fast. But politically, the Republicans got a lot of problems. No, of course they do. But I also think part of what's happening with the Democratic Party is, you know, we've always had fights within wings, just like the Republican Party has had over the years. And I think, you know, the reality is there is no Republican Party to compromise or to find common ground with. It just doesn't exist. And that, I think, makes it imperative for Democrats to understand we have to compromise with each other. and We can't find common ground between us to get the votes we need to get these things done and get voting rights and everything else that needs to happen here. We could devolve into not getting anything done, into failing on some of these things. And if we don't get something done on voting rights, then the Republicans are going to drive a freight train through every state that they can to continue to subvert it. So it's really interesting sort of watching my party and seeing it have to mature pretty quickly. There are not two parties anymore. And that's what I think. So you get Manchin, who still thinks there are. Maybe even Biden still thought there was. You know, that's what I'm saying. And again, remember, only 51% of Democrats writ large think democracy is under attack, according to the poll. I think for Democrats, in many ways, this should be a character test. And the Republican Party failed the character test when Donald Trump emerged, 100% failed. You hear a lot of people say, you know, that Trumpism is an existential threat to the country, all of that. If you really believe that, then you will come together with common allies to defeat that enemy. And you won't have purity tests. And if you really say that, but you don't believe it, then you're going to have a lot of internal squabbles and you're probably going to lose. That's what this race has got to be about. It's got to be nationalized by Democrats and it's got to be a referendum on a democracy. I agree. The reality is the threat is democracy. And if you believe it's an authoritarian threat to democracy, sit down, figure it out and get things done, come together and also reach out to the Republicans that have walked away from the party. It gets back to why I joined the Lincoln Project. We've got to come together in a coalition, put even big differences aside right now, fight this authoritarian movement, win in 2022, win in 2024. And then, you know, we can start talking about marginal tax rates or something and fight over that. But that's not what we should be fighting about right now. Look, we've all been through a lot of different campaigns. And even, as you said, Joe, political parties have tenuous coalitions within themselves to begin with. But coalition warfare has never been an easy thing. You know, you think about in World War II, the United States, the UK, and the Soviet Union fought together. 
Stalin was a terrible human being who'd already killed millions of his own people, had already invaded just as many countries as Adolf Hitler before World War II actually got underway. And when the time came, Franklin Roosevelt said, he's a bad guy, but we send him guns, we send him boots, we send him butter. They're going to take the vast majority of this fight, and we're going to have the time we need to get to it. That didn't make it easier for the U.S. and the U.K., right? Even a special relationship took every last bit of managerial leadership ability Dwight Eisenhower had to keep that together on any given day. And I don't want to necessarily compare the stakes to that, but how do we find people who otherwise don't agree on anything who are willing to sit around a table and say, okay, we've got to do this this time. We've got three and a half years left ahead of us here, guys. This is what we got to do. They have to understand the danger. They go back to this key phrase you used, Reed. It is a failure of imagination. You know, it's part of the great gift of American exceptionalism is to believe that America will always be exceptional. But that becomes a great weakness if you can't imagine that America can change, and it can change very quickly. You know, we've talked about this before. Democracies in modern times usually cease being democracies, not because tanks were rolled up around the TV stations. It's not like Chile and Allende. It's at the ballot box and in the courtroom. And it's a slow process, but then it happens fast. And Republicans understand this. The authoritarian Republicans understand this. You know, it's easy to look at buffoonish characters like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates and let yourself believe that it is a movement of buffoons. But it's not. These are very serious people. They are not stupid. They are organized. They are well-funded. They are patient. And they think they're going to win. And we can't say they're wrong. And, you know, Joe, as Schmidt likes to say, going back to the Israeli police officer that interviewed Adolf Eichmann for 750 hours or whatever it was, that an Eichmann can't exist in a democracy. That kind of low-level, mid-level monster can't rise through the ranks because everybody recognizes the incompetence or the mediocrity and says, you stay where you are. Whereas in an authoritarian regime, those people can rise through the ranks because they're willing to do anything. They don't care. They're willing to say, oh, you want to schedule the boxcars? Yeah, sure. I'm a colonel now. I'm happy to schedule the boxcars. I mean, think about Matt Gates in some ridiculous outfit, right? Some ridiculous uniform. Is it beyond the pale? It would seem to be. But these are the kinds of people who end up doing horrific things to humanity when they have some sort of power. Well, it was Lincoln who said, if the threat ever comes, it's got to come from within and it's here. Again, I think it's the lack of imagination that too many have, including corporate America, at every level in our society. I don't think people are awake yet to what the threat and how dangerous and how precarious democracy hangs right now. And so, Stuart, that's one thing that we see, too. There are large entities within the political system, whether or not that's the media or whether it's the Democratic Party or whether it is corporate America, as Joe noted who are either unable or unwilling to sort of recognize this stuff. Is there any way to convince them that they have to take a look at this? I mean, Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene already told the telecom companies, like, you turn over our phone records, we'll shut you down when we take over. That, I think, is one of the central questions that history is going to study. And I don't think we know the answer to that. You know, you can make an argument here that these companies, they have prospered tremendously under our system. Why wouldn't they defend our system? I mean, do you want to be a CEO of a large corporation in America or Russia? How's that work out? So they should fight for this because you saw with Trump his eagerness to use the power of the state to punish enemies, not just personal, but corporate as well. 
And this is where it's headed. And what I find just so disturbing about this is if you take someone like J.D. Vance, right? I mean, J.D. Vance is an intelligent person who spoke the truth about Donald Trump when Donald Trump emerged on the scene. And yet now he is in this race to the bottom with Seth Mendel, who used to be a not very good politician, but a sane person. And if these people think that the way to advance in the party is to be more extreme, to be more crazy, to be more Trump, where does that end? And the only way you can do it is to defeat these people. Joe's absolutely right. You can't reason with them. I mean, look, what test would be better than COVID? You have in California, the Republican Party went after Gavin Newsom, basically accusing him of doing too much to protect its citizens. I mean, it wasn't about taxes. It wasn't about, you know, we can't pay property taxes anymore. These other great movements in California. It was like too many people are living. Not enough people are getting sick. I mean, it used to be in California when they had death cults. They went out to the jungle and died like Jim Jones. Now they run for governor. <laughs> we all go back to our roots and our personal experience. I look at my home state of Mississippi. Tate Reeves is governor. I've known Tate. He's an intelligent guy. He's a reasonable guy. But he's weak and he's ambitious. So on the one hand, he puts a very good person in charge of healthcare services, a Mississippi-born, Yale-educated physician who really is doing his best. On the other hand, he mocks mask wearers as virtue signalers. The thing is, you can't at 11 o'clock when you see something on the news that says that Joe Biden isn't really president of the United States because there was a conspiracy and he's illegally elected. Okay, Tate Reeves would agree with that. And then at noon, the same people say that there's a COVID conspiracy and it doesn't really exist. You can't say, well, okay, now I disagree with those people. You either have to believe in truth or not. And the end result is tragic in Mississippi. So, Stuart, let me ask you that. Mike DeWine in Ohio is saying we got to mask up. Jim Justice, the typecast West Virginia governor, is saying go get vaccinated. You can't say you don't want to get vaccinated because they're going to track you while you're holding your cell phone. Asa Hutchison in Arkansas said he's sorry he signed the bill outlawing mask mandates. Now you've got Peters in Vermont and Baker in Massachusetts and Hogan in Maryland, but they've always been sort of the last of the sane ones. But do you think that these three who are in conservative states, right? West Virginia is the Trumpiest state. Do you think that there's any chance that they can sort of calve voters off the Trump iceberg? Or do you think that they're like, I'm governor, I got a job to do? I think that they're not fighting Trumpism. They're trying to deal with a public health crisis. So in the specific, they're fighting that element of Trumpism that is anti-mask, that is conspiratorial. But you have to stand up and say, these are the same people who are lying to you about the election. You can't say, okay, they're lying here, but they're telling the truth here. It's a conflicted message. You have to either be willing to stand up for truth or not. And, you know, one of the most disturbing things I find is those governors you're talking about. So Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Phil Scott in Vermont. I work for all those guys. I love them. They can't pick their own state party chairman. I mean, can you imagine a governor can't pick their own state party chairman? I mean, it's like telling Bill Belichick, like, no, dude, you can't send that guy in. You got to call Mad Dog Mike and take a poll. That just shows how out of touch they are with their own parties. I don't see where this ends except when they are faced with complete annihilation, when they realize that there is no way to win by alienating so many in this changing country. 
This is why it's really important to Greg Abbott lose. Joe, is there any good news out there? Can you leave us something before we get out of here with something positive? We're scaring the hell out of people. People are probably, they're listening to this. You know, they were going to have a cup of coffee. Now they open the scotch. No, no, don't do any of that. I think, look, I keep saying this. When I joined the Lincoln Project, I wrote that piece in the USA Today. You know, a lot of my Democratic friends were saying, why are you being such an alarmist? But no, I think we've got to sound the alarm and build this coalition. And everybody listening is part of that. And I will put a plug in for, I just interviewed Judd Legum for that Trippy Show podcast where we're talking about some of the corporate stuff that's going on this week. But that's what I mean. It's about pushing out the message. You know, get one more friend, one family member, one coworker to join the Lincoln Project or something like it. I mean, there's Midas Touch. There's all kinds of organizations out there that need to make this fight. We're going to align with a lot of them and build that coalition. And all of us need to be part of that. Well, amen to that. So before we let you go, all right, so Joe, you mentioned your podcast, That Trippy Show. We can find it on all of our favorite podcast apps. You had Judd Legum, who is the yeoman head of popular information, that he and two other people crank out as much incredible content as they do on a daily basis is well worth the twelve ninety five or whatever yep. it is you yeah. pay for it. And where else can folks find you online? Twitter at Joe Trippy. Stuart, again, the paperback edition of It Was All Lie is out now, folks. You can find it at Amazon, maybe at your favorite local bookseller. And where can folks find you online? Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. I want to say thank you to Joe. Thank you to Stuart. Thank you to all of you out there. You know, take Joe's advice. We have people in all 50 states. You know, as things get closer to election time, we'll start to activate those. But if you live in a state that there's going to be a governor's race, Senate race, U.S. House race, something that matters, sign up. If there's a group that is in your state that you know, that you feel good about, that you want to help, sign up with them, too. It's going to take everybody, as Joe noted, from the Liz Cheney wing of the Republican Party to the Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democratic Party to make this happen. Everybody, thank you so much, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.